So were all of you here pretty much on Sunday? Who missed Sunday? Okay, so I will probably not give you a whole lot of background, uh, but um, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, okay, so what we'll do is, for the rest of you, a little quiz. What did I talk about? I barely touched them. I did. What was the main overarching theme from Sunday, would you say? Yes. What about love? Yes. And it's extremely unconditional. God's love is truly that. And I, you know, I don't know that we will ever truly understand what that means, unconditional love, because we just don't get it. We are so conditional. We are so conditioned to be conditional that it just is difficult. Yeah. God's love is perfect. Exactly. And ours is imperfect, right? And it's not a feeling. Ours is a feeling that's based on conditions. God's is just love. It is a fact. Um, And so if he loves perfectly and he is passionately in love with you, what is he going to have? What is going to happen inside of him when something, when either you choose badly or somebody does something bad to you or sin? Wrath. How come? Yes. And so when we, who are his object of such love, is somehow denigrated, brought down by anything, it harms him so badly. It hurts him so badly that he rises up in wrath. And so we saw in Romans where it starts talking about wrath. So, but when God has wrath, his wrath is perfect. Our wrath is very imperfect. My wrath is filled with bitterness It's filled with all sorts of anger. It's filled with, what else is my wrath filled with? Vengeance. Um, Just evil. My wrath can become very evil. Has anybody ever had themselves some evil wrath coming out of them? (laughs) Oh boy, not you though, I'm sure. Never once. So, but, so what we do, though, is we have a tendency when we're reading Romans and we read about God being wrathful, we interpret his wrath through our lens of what our wrath is. And so now, all of a sudden, God becomes a very scary thing when in the wrong way, I should say, because, you know, we are supposed to fear God, but we fear him for very different reasons. It's a very different thing than reading about this wrath and thinking he's, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You're kind of following what I'm saying. So his wrath is perfect and it really has to be. So uh, let's go ahead though and jump in. So that's where we came from on Sunday and uh, I didn't get very far and I wasn't able to finish it off. But um, tonight what I want to do is for the setting that Romans comes to us in. Okay. So does anybody have any background history in, in Romans and the Bible and all this kind of, is this like going to be new information or do you guys all know this already? New information? Good. I love that. So the really fun thing that um, I have come to understand is that, did you guys know that today is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther and the Reformation? Today. So last night it was All, All Hallows' Eve or All Saints' Eve. And it didn't, you know, back 500 years ago, they didn't run around with trick-or-treaters and costumes on. They were celebrating the the, um, saints, the death of the saints. 
And uh, so that night was the night that he felt was very, very important to him to be able to nail that thesis, those 95 points as to how the Catholic Church had really fallen from the original intent and had fallen into a lot of, um, what's the word, evil? There's a word out there. It's, yeah, pretty much. And so he went, last night, he nailed it on the door so that this morning, when all the people woke up in Germany and was celebrating, it was a, it was a day that everybody, you know, took off from work. It was a celebrate, you know, big holiday, and they all went to church. They saw these things. And today was the 500th anniversary of that. Kind of cool, huh? And all of his theses, all of his points came out of Romans. The whole Reformation is based out of what we're going to be learning, okay? So I'll be telling you a little bit more about that. So a huge, um, uh, all of Luther's Reformation is based out of Romans, and the majority of renewals and Reformations since then have come out of Romans. Those 16 chapters of Romans are so vital to the Christian faith that um, you know, a lot of the commentators that I've been reading have said that if we did not have these 16 chapters and the truths that come forth in this, Christianity would look very different. It would sound very different. It would not be set on such a strong foundation. And uh, so it's my goal with all of this, because when you read Romans, I don't know about you guys, but the first times I've read it, and even before this, it's beyond me. It's above me. It's like, what is, what is circumcision? Why is that so important? And what is justification? And what is, what is propitiation? And what is, you know, these huge words and all these concepts and the law and why do I care? You know, all this stuff that really doesn't, it doesn't, it's not very 2017-ish. But in reality, it is the absolute foundation and the underpinnings of everything that we believe. So I'm hoping to bring Romans into today for you guys to understand, okay? So that's kind of my, my goal. Um, uh, so let's get started. Paul is the author and the dictator, shall we say? He dictated it. Um, so it's all coming from Paul. And are you all familiar with who Paul is? I'm going to give you a little bit of history here on a timeline in just a minute. Uh, But he had a young man by the name of Tertius write it down. And if you wonder about that, if you look at Romans 16, verse 22, he says he names him by name. So that's how we know who was his little dictator, his his writer. Um, And it's written to the church in Rome, of course. And uh, it's written, if you will open your Bibles up right now and turn to Acts, I'm going to try to place Rome, uh, Romans in where, it's, uh, where it fits in the historical books of the Bible, okay? So open up to Acts. And I, how many of you guys love the book of Acts? You need to be reading the book of Acts alongside of this because the book of Acts, most of it is um, the story of Paul. And then you would have kind of an understanding of who, the, um, who this author is and what he did if you're not familiar already, but Acts 20 verses one through three, it says, uh, when the uproar had uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arriving in Greece where he stayed for three months because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to go about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by, and they they list those names there, and um, he goes on. So in Greece, he stayed in the city of of Corinth, and uh, they believe that this book of Romans was written 
right here during this little passage of Acts 20. So you can write in your little column or kind of in the margin of your Bible, right, right in there, the book of Romans is written right here. It's on his third missionary journey. It's at the very end of his life. And uh, so he has already written a whole bunch. He's already laid a bunch out. He's, he's written these other books and epistles that eventually become the books of the Bible and all that kind of thing. So Romans comes towards the end of his, his, um, his journeying. And he doesn't know that, though. He does not know. We know, the, we know history. But at the time of his writing, he did not know that he was nearing the end of his um, free life. So he's, he's writing... Um, He's writing out from Corinth and he's going to be on his way to Jerusalem. And everyone, as you know, hopefully if you have an understanding of Acts, you're going to understand that he's going to get to Jerusalem and it's in Jerusalem that he is first arrested. And when he's in Jerusalem, when he's arrested, then he requests a, a hearing before Caesar. And that's what takes him to Rome. Okay. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about timeline. Because you have to really understand who he... Well, okay. So before I get into timeline, let's talk about Paul and this church in Rome. So the church in Rome, and I mentioned this on Sunday, the church in Rome was a mixed bag. Okay? So the church in Rome. Rome, when you think of Rome right now, you think of the Catholic church, right? Because it's the head of the Catholic church. It's the, the seat of the Vatican and the Pope and all that kind of thing. But there was no Catholic church yet. Okay? The Catholic church doesn't come until 100 A.D., about 100 to 110, when the word Catholic starts coming out and it becomes a church. But Rome is the very center of power for the entire world, okay? So when you think of Rome, think, you know, gladiators, think Roman soldiers, think, you know, the hobnob boots that, you know, crush the entire world. So you have to think that coming out of Rome is power. Coming out of Greece, okay, so Greece is kind of the other kind of vying for strength and power uh, kingdom. There was Rome, the empire of Rome, who at first it was Greece and then Rome rises up and Rome takes over Greece. But Greece is not known for its power. It's known for its philosophy, its thought process. Okay, so the Greeks are not fighters, they're thinkers. Rome are not necessarily thinkers, they're fighters. So eventually Rome beats out Greece and overcomes Greece out of sheer power. But Greece infiltrates with thought process. And it's said that actually thought process and ideas are stronger than the arm, stronger than the the sword and the shield. Because thought, when you can infiltrate in with thought, you can actually melt empires with thought. So Greece remains very strong even today in America, in you, in your thought process and the way you think and a lot of what's taught and, and everything, uh, Epicurean, everything, if we were to you know, trace it all the way back, you would be surprised at still how much Greece and the thought process still affects the way we think. It's very influential. So, Paul. So, okay, so let me, stay, let me finish this. So the book of the church in Rome was made up of, uh, first of all, Jews, and I'll explain to you how that works, but a lot of Jews. The church was birthed as a Jewish church. When the church first started in the first couple chapters of Acts where uh, Peter gets up and preaches his sermon and 3,000 people accept Christ, that's the first day of the church, okay? There were, you know, 
it was a Jewish church. There was probably Gentiles in the midst of that, but it was mostly Jews because they were all Jews coming back into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, right? So it's now just a piece of, of Judaism. The church was just a piece. Christianity was just a sect of the Jewish faith. And there's going to come a time, and I'm going to show that to you in just a minute, where it's ripped into two and it becomes established as a very separate entity, Christianity and Judaism. But during the time of the writing of this, this book, we're still one. We're still pretty much together, okay? And it's in the process of evolving out of the Jewish faith, okay? So lots of Jewish people are sitting in the audience at this church that have accepted Christ. Probably a lot of them accepted Christ when Peter got up and preached that sermon. This was, prob- this was you know, it very well could be. Um, but then also in, in the, the church there are a lot of Gentiles because a lot of Gentiles are starting to accept the faith, you know, faith in Jesus Christ. So we have this huge mix of two very opposite people. Very opposite. I mean, so polarized that before they would become Christians, if a Jew was found near a Gentile, it was an awful thing. They couldn't eat with them. They couldn't talk with them. They couldn't touch them. They were shunned. And so how would you feel if there was a group of religious fanatics that couldn't even, you know, at you, you know? I mean, you'd be like, yeah, you know, here, I'll touch you and see what happens, you know? I mean, so can you imagine the animosity between the Gentile and the Jew? And the Jew had a very high-minded thought process of who they were with God. They were it. And Gentiles, they're coming out of paganism, for heaven's sake. So their whole thought process is the gods and Zeus and, you know, the gods be with you. And going to the Oracle of Delphi up in Greece to get their words, you know. And, and so they're thinking pantheon of gods that really never do anything and that they have to please all of them. A whole different mindset. So you've got Jews and pagans coming together to be raised up to be the body of Christ. It's a frightening thought. I I don't know if I want to be their pastor, you know, but Paul is their pastor. And this letter is written to them to absolutely lay a foundation and bring the two together. Okay. So why Paul? Why did God pick Paul? Paul was the most amazingly prepared person for this. Okay. So Paul's mother was a Jew. Father was a Roman. So do you guys all know this? Am I telling you new stuff? Okay. So yeah. So Paul's mom was a Jew. Now in the Jewish tradition, whatever your mother is, that's what you are. So if you have a Jewish mother, you are a Jew. You are raised a Jew and considered a Jew. Yes. My father was Jewish. My mother was Gentile. Well, there you have it. (laughs) So mother was Jew. What do mothers do? They teach their children from the time they're very tiny. So Paul was raised from the very moment of his beginnings as a Jew. He was taught as a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. His father was a Roman. So he had a very interesting situation. He was a Roman citizen. Most Jews were not Roman citizens. Okay. And to have Roman citizenship meant a lot because he had a, um, every time he could get in trouble, he got in trouble. As you'll read through Acts, they 
you know, get all mad at him and they drag him to jail and throw him in the jail. And he'd yell from the jail cell, um, excuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. And then the jailer would go, what? And go and open him up and let him out. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So being a Jewish or a Roman citizen meant a lot for him. And it also allowed him, and I'm going to show you where he will in Jerusalem in a little bit, you know, ahead of the book of Romans, he is going to request an audience with the emperor, with Caesar. And he could do that because he was a Roman citizen. If he wasn't, he couldn't do that. And so Paul, through that, was able to go all the way from magistrate to magistrate. It was a very long journey, all that shipwreck and all that stuff, you know, the last chapters of, of Acts, is him journeying from Jerusalem all the way to have an audience with the emperor, with the Caesar, the Roman Caesar, the top dog, And so he gets to share Christ all the way. And it's a really, really cool situation. So Paul, he's a Roman citizen and he's raised a Jew. When he is raised a Jew, he's not just raised a Jew. He is placed into the highest and best education. And he becomes a Pharisee. So he he is a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's a Pharisee. And Pharisees are stronger and they're bigger and they're more more, um, influential in the Jewish whole Jewish thing. And he was, uh, and that's what, what he was. And he was really high up in all of that. So he was very well respected in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish community. Now he was raised in a town called Tarsus. Okay. And Tarsus is a Greek city. Okay. So not only, he, not only now has he been raised a Jew and schooled through all the Jewish everything. He's also been, um, he's a Roman citizen. So now he has total understanding of civics and government and everything regarding the Romans and the Roman culture and the Roman gods. But he also was raised in a Greek city. So now he has all this Greek. So he knows all these languages. He understands all their minds. So now he can share the gospel with anybody and speak directly to everything that they're seeing. Now, it's very interesting, and, and hopefully I'll have enough presence of mind that as we're going through Romans, I'll point out to you where, where he's speaking to the Roman or he's speaking to the Jew because of the words, the, the words that he picks. And he does it in such a manner that he doesn't offend either side of the aisle, but he's speaking directly to them and including all of them in this exposition of what salvation is. So it's really cool. So that's Paul. Um, He spoke Greek. He had classical Greek learning, um, all of that. Um, So let's let's do a quick timeline, okay? So I'm going to start over here, and um, someday I'm going to finish my Genesis teaching because that's so much fun, and it's so much a part of this. But I'm going to start with Noah, okay? So here's a big timeline, right? And here we are at NHC right there in 2017, right? So this is Noah. We're going to start with Noah. And Noah was about 20, I'm going to say, you know, it's really hard to put exact dates on these because they weren't taking really good history back then. But what the uh, scholars believe was, was that he, the flood was around 2400 BC. Okay. Uh, then after him, I'm going to take my paper. We have Abraham at about right around 2000. 
Abe. Got it? And then we have um, Moses at about 1,500. I'm going to be really squeezy. I'm not very good at figuring this out. Okay. So what happened here was Noah. We have Noah, Noah's wife, and his three sons and three sons' wives. Everybody else is dead, right? Everybody else has been wiped off the face of the planet. We have Noah. Noah's a mighty man of God. Noah has three sons. And all of the rest of humanity comes out of those three sons. And if this is of any interest to you, you can, they have been able to really trace just about every peoples of the earth from these guys. Uh, listen to my Genesis series. I don't know which one it is when I start talking about Noah or whatever, but I, I will lay some of that out. It's kind of interesting to kind of see where the Egyptians came from, where the Africans came from, where all of that. But basically his three sons, one is Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And out of Japheth comes, uh, out of Ham comes um, the Canaanites, Um, and a lot of the kind of the African area, the um, uh, Egyptian, all that. I'm, it's been a while since I've taught on this, so I don't want to get it mixed up. Out of Shem come the Jewish people, the Shemites, Semites. Okay, so these come the Jews. Out of Japheth comes the rest of the Gentile. You are Japheth. So let's just have some fun. I'm not doing Romans at all. I can't have fun. Shoot. Well, read about, read about Noah and read when his sons kind of have that bad thing that happened, you know, a ham and Canaan and all that stuff. And then he's going to pronounce a curse over these. And he's going to say that, that Ham, the sons of Ham are going to serve Shem. Wait. No, I'm getting it mixed up. How does it go? Oh, I have to. Oh, you guys, time stand still. Can we have time stand still? Curse be Canaan, which is the son of Ham. He is the lowest of slaves. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So, and then it says, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. So that's going to be the Jewish people. May Canaan be the slaves of Shem. So the Canaanites, the Middle Eastern, kind of all of that kind of thing has to serve under, has to come under the Jewish people, the Shemites. And may God extend the territory of Japheth. In other words, Japheth is going to become very, very, very large. So the Gentile population outside of that is going to become very, very large. And uh, this, may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. What does that mean? Out of Shem comes the Jewish religion who eventually will become Christian that brings in the Gentiles. Isn't that cool? Dwell in the tents. Of Shem. It says it in the Bible there. Genesis 9. 9, End of 9. Kind of interesting. So there's a prophetic 
utterance here all the way back to Noah saying that the Gentile race, how can a huge race dwell in the tents of something that's very small? It's not necessarily a physical dwelling. It is a spiritual dwelling that we are going to dwell within what comes forth out of them. Anyway, kind of fun, huh? You like that? Okay, that was totally free. And that time I get back right now, right? Okay, so Noah, here's, here's everybody comes out of Noah, right? Then we have Abraham. Abraham comes along and uh, Abraham, what do you know about Abraham? Father of, father of many nations. He's a father. He's also considered the father of faith. And we're going to read about him in Romans 4. He's going to come out in Romans 4 big. Okay, they're going to talk a lot about Abraham. The whole, the whole chapter is about Abraham. But he's the father. He's the father of faith. He's the father of many nations. He's, he's, he's kind of the beginning. And his, what, who were his children? Do you remember? Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, the line and lineage of the Jewish people come through Isaac. Ishmael is cast out, and out of him come all of the Middle Eastern people. Islam. So Islam, when they teach about their father, guess who they talk about? Abraham. Abraham is the father of all of Islam, of the Muslim faith, through Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of a slave. Slaves have rules. They don't have relationships. Slaves have hard work to be done. They don't have the loving connection of father. And the Bible says how that Ishmael, and when you read through that section, it's going to talk about Ishmael and and Isaac fighting. And and Ishmael will always be against, and he will always be against his brother. And they will always be fighting. They still are, right? So this is Abraham. Then uh, about 500 years later, and, and incidentally, Abraham was alive when Moses was alive. What do you know about Moses? Huh? Uh, he was a basket case? Yeah, as a baby he was. <laughs> I love it. Basket case. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got to stay focused. Um, but led the Hebrew people out of Egypt and what else do we know about Moses? Ten commandments. Law. Everybody say law. So what happens is, is Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the tribes of Israel. All right. You following me? Was that new? Okay. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those become the 12 tribes. You can always get the tape afterwards. That's why I'm, I'm uh, doing this. Okay, so now we have Israel coming out of Abraham. And Israel goes into Egypt, right? Moses delivers them out and brings in the law. Everybody say law. This is important in Romans because we're going to talk a lot about the law. So now for many years... The Israelites live loving this. This is their, this and circumcision, which came from Abraham. 
He started circumcision. So now all of the Israelites live right here for many, many years. Okay? I'm going to throw in here, um, because you're going to need to know this person, because I'm going to quote it out of Romans. Um, uh, at seven, so then they have the conquest, and they get their land, you know, and they become, Joshua beats up all the ites, Perizzites, Hittites, all the ites, right? And they get their land, and then they have King David, and they have Saul first, right? And David, and who came after David? Solomon. And from Solomon, the whole thing goes downhill, right? Okay, so, and Solomon's sons, the king of the Israelite nation gets divided into two. Y'all aware of that? Yes? So they get divided into two. What are the two parts? Israel gets split. What are the two parts? Israel. Yeah. And so then when you're reading in your Bible, this is going to be during Kings, first and second, and first and second Chronicles. Is when they're split. Then in six, seven, seven twenty-two, Israel, the northern kingdom of ten tribes. There's only two tribes down here. These 10 tribes, Israel gets carted off to Assyria. And those 10 tribes are lost forever. They don't know. They've never come back. They're called the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Have you heard of that? Yeah. So these 10 tribes, because they're kings, this whole succession during here were so evil that they got dispersed. So now, you like you read a National Geographic, they'll say, you know, there's a, a tribe of whatever in Northern Africa that they found that is, traces their roots back to, to Israel. Very well could be. The 10 lost tribes, never been found since. They have been totally dispersed. The two in Judah, who are the two? Do you remember? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Yep. Ben and Judah. These two tribes in 605. So they lasted a little bit longer. Get carted off to Babylon. Okay. During their Babylon captivity, they come after that, they come back. Who, who brings them back out of Babylon and rebuilds Israel? Nehemiah. Who are contemporaries of Nehemiah? Yep. In this time frame, Daniel. And a lot of the little prophets, Habakkuk. Um, Obadiah. Have you ever read those books? Uh-huh. A little bit. There's more. I have them in my other thing. So they come back and they rebuild Israel. They rebuild Jerusalem. But they're never very strong. 
okay? And I believe somewhere, I don't know what the date is. Somebody needs to Google this for me. When uh, Rome comes in and occupies Jerusalem. And it's during the Roman occupation of Jerusalem that Jesus is born. So now we get Jesus. And in 33, the cross. Okay. So now, is this, is this interesting to you? I hope so. I hope so. Because I will get to Romans, I promise. I keep promising Romans. So from 33 to about 70, and I'm obviously running out of space now, um, this time period between here and here is the time of the disciples and the young church. So during this time frame, we have actual people that walked and talked with Jesus, that were taught with Jesus, that, that lived with Jesus, that, that lived during this time. This is, called, this is considered a, the very earliest of church time, okay? I, it has a big name. I can't remember what it is. I wish I did, then I'd impress you all. Um, 44, I'm just going to kind of give you a few dates here. In 44, James dies. In 54, Philip dies, A.D., Peter and Paul, Peter and Paul, Paul, dies in 66. Paul's death. The book of Romans is written, what did I do? Did I mess something up? In 63. It's before. For that, though, it, it's, there's a difference between the conquer and the occupation. So Rome is in Jerusalem during this time. See what I'm saying? Um, and now 66, is, is that, that? Okay, well, I don't know how that, but I do know that in 70 is when the uh, Romans come into the temple, destroy the temple, and from that moment on, no more Jewish sacrifice. So up until, from all the way back here, all the way through all this, the Jews are sacrificing and worshiping through sacrifice until right here. And this is when the sacrifice has ended. And since then, the Jews have not sacrificed, had sacrificed, you know, they haven't had a temple and they haven't been able to. So they talk a lot even now about rebuilding their temple and reinstating the, the sacrificial rites and all that kind of thing. But I, from what I understand, biblically, that's not going to ever happen. Oh, really? So... Um, the book of Romans was written, and I'll give you the exact date, 50, the winter of 56 to 57, okay? And then about 1500, 17 is Luther, and then here we are, reading the book of Romans, okay? So now do you understand a little bit of where things are placed? Yes? 
Romans was written right here. 56, 57. It's in a winter time. It's a three-month period of time when he was in Corinth. Right there. This is when he dies. So when you read the book of Acts, you're going to read this really cool story about Paul. And he goes to Rome. And um, in fact, turn to Acts right now. The very last chapter. Paul preaches to Rome at Rome under guard. Three days after we, he called together the leaders of the Jews, when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, all, although I have done nothing against our people or against our customs, I was arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the, uh, to the Romans, and they examined me, wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled, so that, I'll tell you have to read about that. I appealed to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you. So he talks, he goes through, and you can read through this. And um, uh, it says at the very end, um, verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came together in even larger numbers. This is the church in Rome, the Roman church that the book that we're going to read to, read about, is written to. They finally get together, okay? They arranged, they came in even large numbers to the place where he was staying from morning until evening. He explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus and the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had to say. Others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth through your forefathers. And then he quotes something there. Verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly. And without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is in these little section right here. Right in here, Nero uh, comes out with a huge persecution of the Christians and he beheads Paul and kills Peter. Right there. So we, this is the end of anything we know about Paul. What, what I just wrote to you. He was in Rome. He had been there for about two years. There's no description of his death, although there is some historical documents that tell us and teach us that he was beheaded. Um, it was in the middle of a very, very rough and difficult persecution. Then what happens is in 70, so, so the church was really focused pretty heavily uh, in Jerusalem. In 70, Jerusalem falls the temple is destroyed, and uh, it's a very interesting story. That now I'm switching from Romans to Rome to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, just before this happened, just before the Romans came in and destroyed everything, and uh, just absolutely started killing terrible all of Jerusalem, just slaughtering. Um, the church in Jerusalem had had dreams. And this is written in a lot of the historical facts. They had had dreams. And in their dreams, they were told to get out, leave, get out, leave. And so most of, if not all, and I, I wish I had my history book to just to kind of clarify if it was all, if they actually say all, but most of the Christians got up in the middle of the night and ran. And the Jews hated that in Jerusalem. And they saw that as the Christians leaving them and um, 
uh, it was, it's kind of seen as the last separation between the Jews and the Christians. So they ran, hightailed it out of there, and there was this huge dispersion where the Christians, it's almost like one of my uh, theological professor teachers said, and I still have this in my head, you know when you queue up pool, you have all of them all in one, and then you hit it with a ball and everything, right? That's basically what happened. So what God used, this terrible persecution, this terrible moment, to absolutely scatter his church all over. People just all over. And wherever they went, they started churches. And so this was a huge piece of how the church spread. But it's at this moment right here, though, that there's the true final renting between um, Christianity and Judaism. So from that point on, they're very separate. In AD 100, that's when you start hearing the church, all these little churches, house churches, they would start calling themselves the universal church. They were all united because they all believed universally in the, in the cross of Jesus Christ. What is the word Catholic? Universal. That's how the Catholic church started. At first, they were called the way in here. They called them the, themselves the way. But after about 100, then they start calling themselves the Catholic church. And we have the Catholic church as the only Christian church from that point all the way up to 1517. So the Catholic church reigned pretty strongly through here. Okay? So does that give you a good understanding for things? Any questions? Any aha moments? Okay, well, let's, let's start Romans now. <sighs> you have to know all that, right? That's the juicy stuff. Because that tells you where this is coming from. And because everything we're going to learn about in Romans, you're going to go, why are they talking about that? Well, this is why. Okay? So Romans, Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, whenever you hear about Paul being called and set apart and all that kind of thing, I want you to think about how God set up Paul's life to be who he was. And there's a reason why God chose him, right? He was perfect for the job. I wouldn't have been perfect for the job. He was perfect. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of his holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, so all the way from way back here in the writings of all these prophets, Jesus is foretold a Messiah. All the way through. So all the Jews are watching for this, waiting for this. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And just prior to Jesus, there had been guys come along. I'm the Messiah. But he, you know, they never had the power of resurrection. They didn't have the ability to set themselves apart. And I mentioned on Sunday how this verse here, um, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God through his resurrection. That is proof right there that, God, that Jesus was holy man and holy God. That scripture. Now from here all the way through till about mm, three or four hundred, four hundred, there is a huge time in the church where they are beginning to hammer out theology. They're beginning to figure things out. 
And it, it no longer does it suffice to just be, let's get together, sing some hymns and teach. Because they were coming up against huge mental frameworks of religion, Gnosticism, all the philosophies, the Greek philosophers and all of that kind of thing. And as long as Christianity wanted to just be part of just a poor sector, the lower level of society, they could just stay there. But if they had any hopes and dreams of rising up and becoming a, um, a force of God in the universities, in the learned parts of life, and in those realms, they had to put to word and understanding and a framework for theology. Theo, God, ology, study of. So during all these years, there's going to be huge fights. Was Jesus all God? Yes, Jesus was all God and not human. Well, if he wasn't human, how could he be our sacrifice? Well, is Jesus all human and just a little bit of God? No, that wouldn't work because, you know, we can't save ourselves. And, and try to, the Trinity, what is this Trinity thing? We got to figure this Trinity thing out. And all of the different things, all of these different things. So lots and lots and lots and lots of theologies being hammered out. And this is one of them. And this is huge right here. So that verse right there, people lived and literally died over that verse that I just read to you. Verse five, through him and his namesake, we perceived grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to, so uh, among the Gentiles. So for the, you know, this is the first time that Judaism is being inclusive of the Gentiles. This is a huge deal. Read through Acts. They spent quite a few chapters hammering out are the Gentiles a part of this? I thought we were just a, a new little sect of Judaism. Well, if we're going to have Gentiles, how are we going to work that out? I can't even look at you. I can't touch you. And there's this huge, huge change and shift through the, the book of Acts. You have to read about it. It's just, I would love to do the book of Acts next because it's so fun to watch this whole thing come to pass and come to fruition. But um, uh, so... You know, we're going through this season right now where we're pulling Jews out of Judaism. We're pulling Gentiles out of paganism and we're bringing it together and we're forming this brand new house called Christianity. Calling um, from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith. And you are also among those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I thank God, my, my God, through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last that God's will will be made open to me for me to come to you. He's writing to them from Corinth. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's desperate to get to Rome. He thinks he's just going to add Rome onto his missionary journey. He has no idea what's ahead of him. And that when he does finally get to be in front of them face to face, it's going to be in chains as a prisoner shortly before his death. And that trip, he's going to talk about the trip in between is nothing like what he thinks it's going to be. I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual 
spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Spiritual gift here is not that I want to come and give you a gift. Whenever the gift, the word gift is used in the New Testament, you always have to keep in mind it is something from God being dispensed through a human to another human. So what he is feeling is that he is carrying, he's pregnant inside of him with with something that God has deposited into him. And he is so desperate to get to them, to be able to share it with them. He's not thinking he's some great big, you know, dude that has a wonderful thing to, to give them. He is pregnant with something that has been placed in him from God that his, he has to deliver to them. And, and then you see that this, in verse 12, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. In other words, he's saying, listen, when I come with this and when I'm able to share with you what I feel so burdened to share with you, it is not only going to bless you, it's going to bless me. And I can't wait to be encouraged. Now, when you read the end of uh, Acts there, there, I don't know if you remember me saying or if it was a, in a prior verse where it talked about them being mutually encouraged. This verse is actually fulfilled in that last passage in in Acts. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented in doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both from, to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to those of you who are at Rome. Now, in this time frame, if you're talking to a Gentile, if you're talking to something other than a Jew, if you're talking to a Greek, there's only two types of people in the world, Greek and non-Greek. If you talk to a Jew, it's a Gentile and a Jew. So when he says this, when he's addressing the Greeks and the non-Greeks, he's actually talking to that Roman, that Gentile side of the aisle that says, hey, listen, this is about all of us together. And then he lays it out, verse 16. And this is, if you only get this verse, then you will have all of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, power of God. Why would he use the word power? What is Rome? City of power. He's not talking in a Greek city. He's talking to Romans who understand power. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then the Gentile. He's going to say this a lot. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Because God's revelation was first to the Jew and then now to the Gentile. Okay? So he's always going to be kind of addressing him that way. As a a righteousness that is by faith first to last, beginning to end, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the righteous will live by faith. That is a a quote from Habakkuk. This is why I did all this, because now I want to throw us back here. This is a quote from Habakkuk. Okay? There are 80, Paul references or quotes the Old Testament, 84 times in the book of Romans. 84 times. Why does he do that? He does that to draw all of those Jews that are sitting there going, I don't want to have anything to do with this. You're talking about all, you know, you're talking about grandpa here. And I'm not going to be, you know, you're not going to talk me out of grandpa's religion, you know, and you're not going to talk. Well, he's saying, no, 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 I understand all that. I'm going to show you how it is fulfilled and how it works in Christianity. Okay. And this is 84 times, 84 times. Uh, you're not going to always know it, but quite often they will delineate it, but you got to kind of know why. 
So uh, the just will live by faith. Habakkuk, he is a uh, prophet during this time. And he is alive during the reign of Jehoiakim, I believe is his name, Jehoiakim. And he was the second to the last king. The last king was very, very short-lived. And during Jehoiakim, the Babylon, Babylonians are coming down on him. They're bearing down on him. And they're, they're about ready to sweep them away. And, and you know, the, all the prophets have been trying to get everybody to you know, repent and to turn their heart back to God and they won't do it in their heart and judgment is coming and judgment is coming and you're not going to survive the judgment and Habakkuk and all these, Isaiah and all these, you know, that's where all of this, these uh, prophets are, are set in this time and they're yelling, repent, repent, repent. Well, Habakkuk says very strongly, if you don't repent, only the just will live by faith. You will only, um, the only people who will live will be those who are just and who are living by faith. The only people that will survive the coming judgment will be the just who live by faith. So when Paul pulls that into here, he's telling them the judgment is coming. There is great judgment coming. The, God, the wrath of God is about ready to be poured out. And you're storing up more and more wrath. And we're going to read more and more about this. And he says, he pulls that out of there. And they know, the Jews know immediately what they're talking about. Because the, the ravaging force of the Babylons was so strong that only the just survived that. And they only survived by living by faith. The only way that we are going to survive the coming judgment of God Almighty is going to be those who are just and are living by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Pretty cool. You wouldn't know that, right? Old Habakkuk right there in the middle of Romans. So, speaking of, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth with their wickedness. Godlessness. I'm going to start breaking down some words for you here. Godlessness means, or ungodliness, means a neglect of God. It is a crime against God. So he is breaking down now God's wrath. It's going to be against two things. Ungodliness which is a, a crime against God himself, where man has shut him out and either lived a life of total atheistic, I don't want to have anything to do with you, or they have shut him out from their heart and only functioned within their religious outcroppings. This Sunday, I'm going to talk a lot about this. Living as a Christian on the outside, but what is on the inside? I don't want to spill the beans. So godlessness or ungodliness and wickedness. Wickedness refers to evil, moral evil between uh, humanity amongst ourselves. So that covers just about all of it, don't you think? Anything between God and all of other men? Who suppress the truth with their wickedness. They suppress the truth. There's something that, that Paul constantly brings out, and you're going to hear more about this, is about how much God has written his rules and life on the heart of humanity. It's called your conscience. Every single human being walking this planet since the dawn of time, God has written his law on their hearts. 
They have a governing within them that draws them to righteousness. You are not supposed to lie. You are not supposed to harm another person. Even the philosophers, Socrates, Plato, all, Xenophon, and all of them, they had a knowledge and they would write, there is a supreme God whom we owe a duty to. They didn't know. They had no clue about it. They've never been taught. It has been written inside. So every single human being, sometimes I would wonder in the back of my mind, what about all the other human beings that lived before and outside of all of this little tiny microcosm called Israel? How does God handle all of them? Well, Romans is going to tell us in just a minute. But there's two things that God has made himself real to every human being. And that's with the conscience that's written inside of them. Every man has that. Yes. Well, I don't know. It's inside of you. It's, it's where God writes his heart on your heart. You know, I wouldn't be able to. I'll, let me think on that one. Maybe, maybe next week I'll bring that in. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there you go. I don't know, but it's in there. You know it's in there because every time, you know, I do something wrong, I know it's in there. Anybody else uh, ever heard their conscience speaking to them? In the creation or in this creation? Our bodies. Well, that's coming. Hush a bye, girlfriend. It's coming. Just a minute. I got one more verse to go. <laughs> There's a thing called uh, natural theology. Okay? Natural theology. And that is theology, knowledge of God, that is given to us naturally. And one half of it is the conscience that's within us. The other half is what you're talking about, and I'm going to get to right now. Um, who suppress the truth with their wickedness. What, what he's talking about, the truth there is their conscience and they would suppress their conscience with wickedness. They would have to shut up their conscience. Every human being, you know, all these guys that are going out and shooting up and da 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 they have to suppress their conscience with their wickedness. They have to calm it. They have to silence it. Because even every single one of them have it screaming. And my prayers every single morning as I'm walking you know, doing my prayer time, Father, God, don't let them scream. Just start screaming (laughs) in every person right now that's planning evil today. Scream so loud that it's too hard for them to overcome and suppress their conscience. But unfortunately, God won't do that because he's given us a free will. And he respects that so much, he will allow us to destroy ourselves. But isn't he a loving God? Absolutely, that's why. He restrains himself. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, there you go, Lynette, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been, has been made so that, men are not without, are, so that men are without excuse. So this is the other half of this natural theology. Everything that you see out there, creation. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
but you know, it's just, it's just crazy. So I, I've, and I've heard this amazing teaching. I'm hoping to take at least 10 minutes here to explain out here because it says here very clearly, he says, uh, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, which is number one, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. His eternal power and his divine nature. I'm going to break this out too, because I, and I think this is going to be really, really fun. Power. Eternal power. So you talk to scientists today, and that word power means energy. There is an energy that has been infused into creation that scientists are constantly testing and understanding and trying to figure out, okay? There's this, uh, they have um, power, it's energy. They've determined, you know, the laws of thermodynamics, right? We talk a lot about that. Number one law of thermodynamics is conservation. In other words, that we live in a closed system right now. That energy or power is not being made and it's not being lost. It's all here, it's there, and it continues to be here. It does not, it does not, it's, it's called the law of conservation. So energy or power will change It'll go from force to kinetic energy to heat to all sorts of things, but it, it's always there in the same amount. And it has a math and whatever it is, math, whatever. So all of our energy, it, we are in a closed system. But what boggles the minds of scientists is where did our energy come from? Something happened to create our energy. There's also within our system here, our closed system, um, dark matter which is this background radiation of energy that they can't really put their finger on and they can't really describe, but it's there. It's like, like this kind of in the background. It's like background. It's like background noise. It's, they can't figure it out. It's called dark energy. Well, the Bible, when you take a, I heard, oh my word. When you take a balloon and you stretch it out, you know how it gets really thick and really hard and kind of uh, elasticity. Otherwise it's all flimsy or whatever you, you stretch it out. It has uh, the way the scientists describe it. It becomes very charged with some energy in there. Okay. The Bible says that God stretched out the heavens and placed them. So that same stretching, if it follows with those rules will inherently place into the entire universe energy, kind of a low level background energy. God stretched the heavens. Why do they say stretch the heavens? That sounds like a strange thing, but maybe God did. He went like that. And as he did that, it just kind of infused all of the, the cosmos with this kind of background energy that they can't figure out where in the world it comes from. Energy. So For us to have all this energy in our closed system, it had to be created. It had to come from a eternal, because this is a um, not eternal area. This is a finite area. It had to be an energy source that came from an outside place coming in that carried with it much more eternal significance. But they can't figure that out, so they don't talk about that. But here it says... His eternal power shows his goodness so that we are not with, we're without excuse. The energy holding 
the atoms together, holding together the nucleus of every atom is so much energy. There's so much power in there. Let me read this. There, um, there's so much in there that, that it's frightening. Nuclear bombs that break that and let that power go has the ability to destroy the entire earth. The power that's packed in every single little atom. Where did that power come from? Who cranked that up? They don't know. It's all an accident. (sighs) There was a dramatic demonstration of the power locked into the heart of the atom on August 6th, 1945. About 22 pounds, only 22 pounds of uranium exploded over Hiroshima. But in reality, only a very small fraction about the size of a pea was actually converted into energy that caused that explosion. You talk about the power that is sown into our creation. It screams God. And they don't know what to do about it. Okay, let's talk about divine nature. What is God's divine nature? God's divine nature is also seen in the Godhead. Does anybody's translation say Godhead there? Yours does? What, what translation is yours? This is verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, which is packed into every single atom. Okay, now you're never going to look at your atom, uh, you know, in the same way. And divine nature. And you're saying that sometimes yours says... Godhead. So divine nature, Godhead. A lot of times they're translated, you know, differently, but they mean the same thing. So what is the Godhead? The Godhead is the Trinity, right? So Trinity, mind-blowing thought process. Does anybody understand the Trinity? Do you get it? Three is one, one, but three, only one. Do we have one or three? I, you know, Elohim, is the word of God, the word God that, that means one multiple, a multiple one, more than one, but one, okay? So there's three parts of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't add up, one plus one plus one equals one. But that's the mystery, and that's huge. Okay, so somehow in creation, the Godhead is seen. Can I tell you where? Okay, listen to this. I'll do my best to be a scientist up here. Godhead is a triune. God is not one, but three. A triune God, but one. We live in what, the sci- what scientists, science calls a tri-universe. We, are not, we do not live in a universe. We live in a tri-universe. We live in three dimensions. There's three dimensions to the universe. There is space, there is mass, and there is time. And that's what makes up our universe, space, mass, and time. And it breaks down even farther than that. Space is made up and measured by height, by width, and by depth. Three. 
You have height, width, and width and depth. Now you have space. You don't have space if you don't have all three. But all three make one space. Mass. Mass, the very smallest particle of mass is the atom. What is the atom made of? Electrons, protons, and neutrons. Three. You can't have an atom without all three. An atom is three, but it's one. But three, but one, but three. You can't have two, but it makes one. Time. You can't hold time. You can't figure out time. Time happens. We are set in the biggest time machine ever. You look inside of the workings of a clock and it all kind of... And time passes and it watches time pass, right? But that's not time. You can take that clock and smash it and and you still have time happening, right? Time is actually when God created the universe, what he did was he created an entire time machine. The world spins and it's a day. The world spins around the sun and it's a year. Do you see what I'm saying? We are in the midst of this. We, are, we live in time. And it's spinning around us and we can't stop it. And time is made up of three things. Future, present, and past. It flows to us out of the source of the future. And we don't know what brings time about. We experience the present and we remember the past. The Godhead being shown in creation. Pretty cool. They've been clearly seen and being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For all they, though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images to made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Let me read to you some things here. South Clare, uh, S.C. Todd, Kansas State University professor. Even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis must be excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. So even if it all looks like an intelligent designer was there, that God made it, can't be, because we, we, we have no room for that. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, if you're familiar with him, He says, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see is not designed. Because they look at it and it screams designer. It screams intelligence. Because what is DNA? DNA is information. DNA is four proteins lined up. 36 billion, I think. I'll, I'll read to you in just a minute. In such a coded way that it makes you and it makes you and it makes you and it makes you and every single one is important and how it's lined up. And he is the one that discovered it. He's the one that opened it up. Now, not one single word can be written without some intelligence behind it writing it, let alone a book. 
A book has to have intelligence. Information, and, and the whole study of information now is becoming more and more popular in the scientific realm because of the, the discoveries of DNA and the, this information-carrying thing. That it is absolutely declared that you have to have intelligence betw- behind any bit of information. There has to be. Because anything but intelligence will end up with randomness, not information. Okay? So, let's talk about DNA. It's amazing what's in the tiny space of every single cell of your body. Three billion letters long is your DNA. Three billion. Not million, not thousand, not hundred. Billion. To grasp the amount of DNA information in one cell, a live reading of that code at a rate of three letters every second will take 31 years being read night and day. And your body goes in there, zips through, writes it, transports it over here, builds another cell, sends it out. Like that. Constantly. Francis Crick. Once again, let me remind you what he said. Biologists must always keep in mind what they see is not designed, but rather evolved. Anthony Flew. He's a British atheist philosopher, born in 1923, died in 2010. He spent most of his life espousing his atheistic beliefs. He wrote a book called There Is No God until Crick and his buddy discovered DNA. And it was the discovery of DNA of which he was faced with this information and he could not do what Crick says. Remember Crick said, you got to look at it and just go, no, 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 no. Suppress the truth, suppress the truth, suppress the truth. He looked at that and he goes, there's no way. So just before his death, when he was 80 years old, he wrote a new book. You know what it is or was? There is a God. He is... Quoted as saying, the most impressive argument for God's existence are, that, are those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. The, the argument to intelligent design is enormously stronger than it was when I first met it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But in their, their thinking became futile and their fu- foolish hearts became, were darkened. Although they claim to be wise, they become fools. That word fools is actually the word insane. It's actually insane. And they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for the images to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, when Paul wrote this, this was back in 56 AD. He didn't have all this scientific information. Evolution was not a thing. What he was describing here, and we're going to read in the next, uh, are, was the devolving of mankind from Noah through here to his time, to Roman paganism, to Greek mythology, where they exchanged. Noah knew God. Noah taught his sons. But mankind, once again, devolved like what he just described, to the point where they exchanged the knowledge of an immortal God for shapes and reptiles and, and, and idols. Now today, we don't get down on our knees and we don't obey, you know, worship idols. We don't have 
you know, people running around a whole lot, at least in America. But what we do have is thought, reasoning, humanism that has been raised up. That we now, that's, that's how it describes us now. Therefore, God, that gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. Now, it's very interesting in my mind that, God, that Paul would immediately go to sexual immorality. He doesn't go to the smaller things. He goes straight from you'd, you exchange God for an idol, immediately says sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is one of the first things to enter in when, when man leaves God. And I will say that that also is a reason why back here with Abraham, when Abraham called Abraham, when God called Abraham and he spoke to him and he said, come out of your father's house. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to do all this. And, and a couple chapters later, he institutes with him. He cuts covenant with him and all that. And he institutes with Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. So all the males had to go in and cut off the foreskin it's to, and it was the cutting off of their flesh. And the reason being is that then every time they would enter into any kind of sexuality, they were reminded, I am God's. Because sexual sin is one of the first things. It's a main thing. It is like, it's like the, the, the jugular that, that Satan goes for constantly, always. Therefore, God gave them over for sin to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, and to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things other than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanging natural relations for unnatural relations. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received inside of themselves the due penalty of their perversion. So, I, it is what it is. I don't know how we can change that to something else. That homosexuality is a result of sin. And it is the... the, the the fruit of leaving God. Ours is not the first society. Rome was steeped in it. Greece was steeped in it. Um, Athens and Sparta steeped in it. And whenever you find a society that leaves God Almighty, they will turn to this. And we have, over the years, turned our back as a general whole here in America And now what do we find prevalent? Now he goes on and he lists 22 more evils. Now, like I said, I think I would have put these first and then put sexual things, but he doesn't. He, he addresses, he goes right for the jugular. He addresses the sexual sin first, and then he gets into verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full 
of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. So what he does is he starts with the worst and he works his way down. Can you find yourself in that passage there? You're all looking at me with blank stares. I'm in there. I've gossiped before. Anybody else gossip? Yeah. What else? Sometimes I've been heartless and ruthless with my children. Um, slanders. I've been arrogant. I've been boastful. I have had envy. I'll go to other churches and see how big and cool and awesome it is. And like, Jesus, how come mine's not cool like that? I want that. I've been envious. Anybody else ever been envious? Rots me to the bone. I feel so icky when I am...